We'll hear argument next in number 9220. Spectators are admonished. The court remains in session. Do not talk until you get outside. Argument next to number 92-2058, Hawaiian Airlines versus Grant Norris. Mr. Hipp. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This case is about the scope of the minor dispute resolution procedure of the Railway Labor Act and whether an airline employee can abandon that procedure and go to state court with a state tort claim of wrongful discharge. This court has repeatedly recognized that Congress, in establishing the Railway Labor Act, set up a comprehensive, indeed pioneering, alternative dispute resolution procedure for adjusting minor disputes between employees and employers without lawsuits and without strikes. Furthermore, as all the parties in this case accept, the minor dispute resolution procedure within the Railway Labor Act, Section 204, must go through the mandatory arbitration procedures of the Adjustment Board in the absence of a concurrent jurisdiction pursuant to Congressional Act. Where we part company with the Hawaii court, with the respondent and with the Solicitor General, is in defining the scope of the jurisdictional language of Section 204. In our view, and as we've argued at length in our brief, our opponents' positions concerning the scope of Section 204 are flawed because they attempt to rewrite the plain language of Section 204 and other provisions of the Railway Labor Act and they misconstrue the Railway Labor Act's legislative history and this court's decisions interpreting the RLA. If this court were to accept our opponents' views, the result would greatly undermine Congress's scheme for resolving employment disputes, and it would do that by undercutting the historic legislative trade-off that took place in 1934, whereby unions and employees achieved the mandatory arbitration procedures of the Railway Labor Act in return for giving up their right to go to court and their right to strike. As this court recognized in the Chicago River and Indiana Railroad case, that trade-off was fundamental to the 1934 amendments to the RLA prior to the enactment in 1936 of Section 204. Mr. Hipp, you seem to be arguing for a different standard under the RLA than that under Lingle and under the National Labor Relations Act. I'm not sure... How do you justify application of such a different standard? Your Honor, the touchstone for preemption, as in fact the court recognized in Lingle, is not to apply some Procrustean approach, but instead to look at the purposes of Congress in each scheme. What was the purpose of Congress in Section 301? The purpose of Congress was to assure common interpretation 
of collective bargaining agreements pursuant to federal common law. There's no mention of alternative dispute resolution there. There's no mention of any arbitral forum there. What is the purpose of the Railway Labor Act? The purpose of the Railway Labor Act is to provide a method, a comprehensive method, for resolving disputes between employers and employees. If you look at Section 2 first of the Railway Labor Act, Congress has made the determination that it is these kinds of disputes between employers and employees that leads to disruption of interstate commerce. Therefore, Congress set up in Section 3 first I for the railroad industry and in Section 204 for the airline industry a method for resolving those disputes. The method is an arbitral or adjustment board method, and a scope of jurisdiction is stated there. It is a congressional scope of jurisdiction. Therefore, unlike Lingle, which addresses Congress's concerns related to interpretation of the collective bargaining agreements, Congress had a different agenda in 204 and 3 first I. But I suppose uh, Congress didn't intend to entirely preempt uh, ordinary state laws, even in the transportation industry, having... Uh, I guess we've upheld state requirements that the train have a caboose and one thing and another. And so, uh, obviously, we have said there is room for application of state law. That's correct. Even, even under the RLA. That's correct, Your Honor, and that is because you must address the congressional purposes of the RLA. The RLA was designed to deal with disputes between employees and employers. It was not designed to deal with whether or not a state established a minimum substantive standard such as a caboose. If you have a regulatory agency in a state that says, and the state makes the determination through its legislative process, that state may have a caboose law. It doesn't have anything to do with the Railway Labor Act. The state perhaps could arguably have made a conscious decision by the passage of whistleblower statutes that this is a means of assuring public safety. They can make that determination, but what they cannot do, Your Honor, and this is what the Andrews case, in essence, holds, is that they cannot take a dispute between an employee and an employer in the airline or railroad industry and convert that dispute into a state law claim, taking it out of the adjustment board process. Why not? Why can't they do that? Because Congress recognizes... They haven't taken it out. They've added, perhaps. Well, this, this raises the spe- uh, specter again of what happened when this court uh, in uh, the Moore case years ago established this concurrent jurisdiction concept whereby you could go both to state court and you could go to the adjustment board procedure. Mr. Buell, as I understand your argument, you're not arguing that the R- RLA preempts state law at all. It's, it's not a present preemption uh, claim you're making at all. It, it's an exclusive jurisdiction claim. You're saying state law applies but it has to be applied through the arbitration procedure of the RLA. Isn't that correct? Uh, No, Your Honor, that's not correct. Not correct. You're saying state law is preempted, so the state law does not exist. The state law does not exist in the situation where there's a dispute between the employer and the employee covered by these uh, mandatory... Where the dispute concerns an issue of state law, there no longer is a dispute. So you don't have to go to arbitration then. Quite... uh, Saying the state law is ineffective. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that, Your Honor. It is effective. It is effective, correct? It's not preempted. No, I'm sorry, Your Honor. It is, it is preempted. If, if your question, Your Honor, is directed at the question of what the Adjustment Board looks at. Does the state law apply? Is the state law applicable? The state law... To the employment relationship? 
Can the state law govern it? Yes, Your Honor, it can, depending upon whether or not it is regulating and a, a dispute between the employer and the employee on the one hand, or if it is establishing substantive minimum standards. Perhaps I can give you an example that, that would clear I'm, this I'm up. I'm really confused. I had thought you were making an exclusive jurisdiction claim that you apply the state law, but it's to be applied by the board through the arbitration. Now you're telling me no, that the state law is preempted. That's a quite different... Well, well Your Honor, let's, let's make this clear because it is... Maybe you can make your example specific to this case. And this, is, this would be my question. Suppose the board finds that Norris was indeed improperly discharged. At that point, what remedy could the board give? Would there be any room for the state whistleblower's statute in the remedy that the board could give? The board would be free to fashion a remedy to deal with the finding that it made. The finding is that discharge was improper. This person did just what an employee should do, detecting a condition that might make flights unsafe for passengers. So it's a complete exoneration of what he did. Indeed, the board concludes instead of being disciplined, he should have gotten a medal. Therefore, the remedy is, and what could the remedy be, and how would it differ from a state law remedy under the Whistleblower Act? The remedy would be left open to the Adjustment Board to establish. And that remedy would take into account the state public policies in establishing whatever remedy the Adjustment Board wanted. As a practical matter, in the absence of a state law, couldn't the board do exactly the same thing? It would simply not look to state law for the source of its public policy, but it could come up with basically the same standard, couldn't it? That's exactly correct, Your Honor. And in fact, that is a... Why then did Congress add, if I'm correct, why did Congress add a whistleblower provision to the substantive law governing rail employees but not airline employees? Well, it was only addressing the railroad side of the equation in the Fair Rail... On your theory, wasn't it equally redundant, equally unnecessary with respect to the rail employees? Yes, Your Honor, except for one thing. What is clear under the Federal Rail Safety Act is a specific punitive damage remedy is included under that of $20,000. Therefore, there is a direction by Congress as to how you should be formulating your remedy. And it's important that you understand, particularly in dealing with the arguments by my opponents here, that under the Federal Rail Safety Act, non-union employees are committed to Adjustment Board jurisdiction so that even in the absence of a collective bargaining agreement, those employees go through the Adjustment Board procedure for resolution of their claim. And this is why I need to address, if you don't mind, Justice Scalia's point, because I think it's a fundamental point here. And that is, what is the source of the law, the substantive law that an Adjustment Board looks at? What did Congress intend about that? Because it deals with the complex of questions, including the Seventh Amendment question, that's presented here. If all Congress had said was, you take state law claims and you move them over to an Adjustment Board process, then you would have a problem with regard to a right to jury trial. But that is not what Congress said. Congress said, we want disputes, grievances, if you will, which are identified to include discharges, 
to be resolved by an adjustment board. And the adjustment board, and this court recognized this in Burley, by the way, and I'll, I'll refer to footnote uh, 36 of Burley, for exactly the problem that you presented, Justice Scalia, and that is... There's, there's no grievance, it seems to me, unless state law applies. Let's assume that there's no federal whistleblower statute. There is a state whistleblower statute. The employee is dismissed, claims it's in violation of the state statute, so he brings a grievance. Why is there a grievance if state law does not govern? What, what does he have to grieve about? You're telling me state law does... Okay, in that, in that particular grievance, he has been disciplined in some way, as you've just described. Yeah, and he says this, this disciplining is in violation of state law, isn't he? Correct. And now you... Not in violation of state law, it's okay. So now the question is that there's a dispute between the employee and the employer that's covered by the Railway Labor Act, and the question is what is the substantive law that is going to be applied... By the, rail, uh, by the Adjustment Board in that... There case. is no dispute unless you posit the applicability of state law. There is no dispute. The only basis for his claim is that state law governs. If you tell me state law doesn't govern, there's no dispute. State He's law... He's not claiming that, that he has a federal right to whistleblower uh, uh, relief. Well, state law provides the floor upon which the Adjustment Board has to function. There's a difference, of course, between taking into account state law policy and requirements and not rejecting those. That's, that's, in essence, what you've looked at in the MISCO case. That's a really gossamer distinction, it seems to me. Uh, are, are you saying that, supposing this case, uh, we, we have this case coming up in Hawaii, which has a whistleblower protection statute. Supposing you have an identical facts case coming up from, let's say, Nevada, which doesn't have a state whistleblower protection statute. Now, it, it, must the Adjustment Board handle these two cases differently? No, Your Honor, and in fact, this is exactly, this is my point, and that is the Adjustment Board was established by Congress, and you see this in Representative Crosser's statements at the time of the passage of the Act, to act like a court, to make the kinds of judgments based upon a range of policy considerations. Well, and I take it from what you've just said, that among those policy considerations is not uh, uh, the state law. The state law may be taken into account. Well, is it just totally arbitrary then on a part of the Adjustment Board? It may, it may not, it could do lots of different things, but it doesn't have to do any? It is not arbitrary, Your Honor. Well then, but it seems to me every time you've been asked, you've said, well, it could be, but it doesn't have to. Well, and the how, how, why would the Nevada and Hawaii cases be treated either A, differently, or B, the same? Well, certainly uh, it would be treated to provide under our contract, because it states that an employee cannot be disciplined for refusal to perform work in violation of federal or state safety laws, to provide a floor at whatever the, the state safety law uh, mandated. But it would be up to, and there could be inconsistencies. Let's give you an example. This is one of the things Congress addressed when it was looking at the right-to-work laws. What if you have a state law that said uh, you have to sign off, you have to, uh, you have to become a union member, and then you have another state law that says, no, you have a right to work here, uh, and uh, you cannot require somebody to become a union member. There's a conflict there. And well, Congress dealt with that in an, ex in an explicit fashion by saying we're not going to apply these particular kinds of laws uh, across state lines. But when you look, and in particular look at Burley, when it talks about what the nature of the substantive considerations are at the adjustment board level, here's what they say in Burley, depending upon the substantive char character of the claim, 
its foundation in the collective bargaining agreement or otherwise, and other factors that that will determine how the adjustment board comes out. But now, that, 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 frankly, seems to me to be almost uh, so vague that, that you can't put your finger on anything. Uh, do the cases from Nevada and Hawaii come out differently before the adjustment board, or do they come out the same? They would no doubt come out the same. So it doesn't make any difference that Hawaii has a statute and Nevada doesn't? That's correct. So then the, 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 the state law must be virtually non-existent. It must be entirely preempted. It is, well, in the context of a dispute between an employer and an employee, that is absolutely correct. Withdrawing what you said earlier about you said state law provides a flaw, state law policy would be taken into account by the board. Now you, you, your response to the Chief Justice is state law is irrelevant indeed, not to be positively not to be considered. No, I, I, I'm sorry, Justice Ginsburg, if that's what I suggested. I believe the Chief Justice asked me if the cases would come out the same. I believe that the cases would come out the same, and Congress believed that the cases would come out the same because it recognized specifically with regard to the uh, whistleblowing situation the background and the adjustment boards of dealing with these whistleblower claims. Therefore, since Congress has already recognized that the adjustment boards deal with these whistleblower claims, I am assuming that the employee will get the benefit of the uh, whistleblower protection. And where the... Well, what, what is the whistleblower protection and where does it come from? Case law, if it comes from statute? Right? You, you're rejecting the Hawaii Whistleblower Act as the source of law. What is the source of the whistleblower protection that the employee would get before the board? The source comes from four different locations. Uh, the, one source is the collective bargaining agreement. Another source is the practice and procedures of the parties with regard to the collective bargaining agreement. A third source... But what is it, well, can you be specific about what the collective bargaining statute uh, agreement says about whistleblowers? I, I'm sorry, what the collective the bargaining... The source is the collective bargaining con uh, agreement. Okay. What in the collective bargaining agreement governs whistleblower protection? In particular, there's a just cause provision in the contract that prohibits employees from being terminated for just cause. It also protects employees from refusing to sign off on work performed in violation of state or federal laws, safety laws. Counsel, That's only let, me, let me try this one more time a different way. Uh, suppose that before this employee were discharged, the employer came to you as the employer's counsel and said, in determining whether or not I may discharge this employee, must I consult and be guided by the Hawaii whistleblower statute? What would be your answer? My answer would be that you may not do anything in your adjustment board process that would reject the policies in the Hawaii whistleblower protection statute. I'm not talking about the adjustment board process. I'm asking whether or not I may, I must take account of that statute in determining whether or not I will discharge the employee. My answer would be that you should take into account the policies under that statute and whether, in deciding whether you I should as a matter of law, must I as a matter of law? That you must. Then why do the Nevada and Hawaii cases uh, come out the same? Because in, in one you have provided a floor, in the other you have not... If the Nevada case had stated, Your Honor, that you are permitted 
in fact, mandated to terminate people for whistleblowing, then there would be a conflict. If the Nevada case, as you posited it, says nothing, then the Hawaii case provides the floor. So there are other sources for whistleblower protection other than state law. That is correct, Your Honor. And what are they? The sources arise in the contract, in the practice and procedures of the party, in the Federal Rail Safety Act. It is also uh, okay. is a source. So the, 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 the board would, even though the Federal Rail Safety Act applies only to railroads and not to airlines, the board would simply carry it over? Well, certainly the uh, policies involved would be carried over. Well, why? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Congress passes a law saying, "Here's a law. we want this law to apply to railroads. And the board says, well, we'll apply it not only to railroads, we'll apply it to airlines, too. My response was that the policies would carry over because Congress, in the legislative history, which we cited for you, states very specifically that it understands that this same protection is provided through the adjustment board process. May I ask, you started to respond to an earlier question by identifying four sources of law. you got the agreement, the practices, and the Railway Act. What's the fourth? Uh, and the agreement, the practices, uh, the, state, the, the policies under state and federal substantive laws, the policies involved, and that's through an, an AMISCO analysis. And how do and you... Finally, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm, that was the third one. That's the third. And then the finally is uh, the Federal Rail Safety Act. Okay. provides explicit jurisdiction, even for non-union employees in the rail line. Focusing on the third for a moment, uh, how, how does that reconcile the Chief Justice's hypothetical if the two states have different policies? As long as they don't have conflicting policies, then whatever the Adjustment Board decides upon, it would, uh, it would take into account the policies involved and establish a floor for the employees. This, of but course, is nothing new. from that that they would come out the same. They might come out the same. But I don't see how you can answer the Chief's question by saying they would. Well, certainly, with regard to the specific whistleblowing question, I think we can, by reference to what Congress has said, it understands to be done in the, in the adjustment boards already. Where did well, Congress say that? Where, where did Congress say that? In, uh, in the legislative history of the of Federal a, Rail Safety of Act. A congressional, of a congressional act uh, applying only to the railroads. Yes, that's correct, Your Honor, but it was speaking about adjustment board process and what they took into account, and the Adjustment Board scope of jurisdiction in the airline and railroad industries are coextensive. May I give you a hypothetical that does not have a federal policy counterpart? Supposing in Hawaii you said they had a statute that said nobody has to work on King Kamehameha's birthday, and it's just Hawaii has such a statute. Could the um, employer, and the employer made the man work on, the, on that birthday and fired him, or fired him if he didn't, something like that. What, what result in that case? In that case... And you assume the collective bargaining agreement is silent on, on the particular holiday. All right. In this, in this case, Your Honor, the employee would have to be reinstated. Why? And let me tell you, explain why, because that's a good hypothetical. Uh, it's, the reason that, it would, that that would work that way is that you have a state minimum standard that is established. Correct. Namely, every employee will be off on King Kamehameha Day. The employer is as we know, pursuant to the terminal case, has to abide by these state substantive standards. Now, as to after you have that uh, substantive standard, if you terminate an employee in violation of that substantive standard, you will have violated a policy pursuant to state law. That policy is incorporated in the complex that the adjustment board must evaluate in deciding the discharge case. Let's, your, let's carry your hypothetical out, because if you go to the... 
They just well, instead of saying instead of discharging, they just didn't pay him for the day. They docked him for a day's pay, and there's no remedy under the collective bargaining agreement for missing a day's pay. Could he sue in state court and get the day's pay? No, he could not, Your Honor. Your assumption here is that you assumed the answer in your question, namely that there would be no remedy under the uh, collective bargaining agreement. But Congress dictated that there would be a remedy for that under the collective bargaining agreement because Congress said there has to be an adjustment board, and Congress said that that adjustment board has to consider grievances. And if you would look at how the development of the Railway Labor Act was in the first 10 years, and you look in particular... the term grievances is really the heart of the dispute, I suppose, whether grievances include non-contractual disputes as well as contractual disputes. That's correct, Your Honor, and I would really ask... They must provide relief in that case. They they, must. The Adjustment Board must provide relief. And if by that case it was the the wage payment situation... The 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 holiday case, right. But But they need not provide it in the whistleblower case. Just they may. They may take it into account, right? No, Your Honor. They, they must it. provide it in the whistleblower case, too, right? That's correct, Your Honor. The same they, relief that the state requires. They, not the same remedy. This was, a, this was a debate between the majority in Andrews and, uh, and, and uh, Justice Douglas, because Justice Douglas kept saying, under state law, I get, you get this additional remedy. You get all of these good remedies under state law that you're not going to get under the adjustment board. And the answer to that is, that is not what preemption is all about that preemption allows the Adjustment Board to, to fashion the remedy. I would ask the court to look at Professor Garrison's article, and particularly it's cited many times by this court because it was written in 1937 after 10 years of experience under the Railway Labor Act. At pages 583 and 586 of that article, the, uh, Dean Garrison describes, he describes how the Adjustment Boards had been dealing with grievances He identified grievances as a narrow class of cases that he identified as being discharges or refusals to promote. If you look at the analytical framework that was being used by the Adjustment Board, he distinguishes how the Adjustment Board addressed those cases and how it addressed contract interpretation cases. He said that in those cases, the Adjustment Board looked at the equities. uh, In his state lawsuit... Did he ask for punitive damages? Yes, he did, Your Honor. Could he get those under the grievance board proceeding, assuming every fact was found in his favor? The Hawaii court found that he could not. The arbitrator, who is the only arbitrator who's testified in this case, said that under certain limited circumstances, punitive damages would be available. However, I would also hasten to note, Justice Ginsburg, that this, again, lies at the heart of the debate between Justice Douglas and the rest of the court in the Andrews case because he was focusing on the remedy provided by state law and he was saying, look, you can't get the same remedy over here in this Railway Labor Act proceeding. And that was not a basis for not finding preemption. You have to understand... Review for me your answer of assuming everything was found in his favor, what could the remedy be from the board and how would it differ from the state law remedy? I, Your Honor, that is addressed at length by the arbitrator in the joint appendix the arbitrator takes one position. The Hawaii court found, found that there would not be anything other than back pay and the traditional status quo ante remedy. The Hawaii Whistleblower Protection Act itself provides for the payment of back pay plus actual damages. That's the terminology that's used there. The Hawaii uh, Whistleblower Protection Act, according to the state court judge, does not provide for punitive damages. However, the plaintiff has sued for 
uh, in common law and ask for punitive damages. I'd like to make two, two final points here, uh, and I think they are key. And that is that what is essence is being asked of the, of the opponents in this case is for you to do away with the trade-off that took place uh, in 1934, whereby employees got the mandatory arbitration procedures and they gave up strikes and but, but going to court. But doing away and, with it, too, because you were telling us that even in the instances in which there is a presumption, preemption, the preemption is somehow softened by this obligation to borrow standards or to borrow principles. You're, you're interfering with the trade-off, too, aren't you? No, Your Honor, I believe this is exactly what was uh, uh, entailed. That the, then if you look I, at what the adjustment board was... I still don't understand the source of the obligation to borrow these standards. The source of the obligation is for the court to function, I mean, for the adjustment board to function in the nature of a court, to look at and draw upon the policies. And why, isn't, why wouldn't it be functioning in the nature of the court for the board to say, we think whistleblower legislation uh, is very unwise, uh, and we are not going to recognize any grievance whatsoever uh, that that has as its source a, a whistleblower claim. Is that open to the board? If, they, if the, board, the board might well say that, that would be subject to review in the courts under this court's... Well, but I want to know standard. how the review turns out. Can the, can the board say that uh, in, in a grievance arising in Hawaii? I would say that it could not say that. What? And the reason I would say that, Your Honor, is that Congress has recognized already I mean, that this has to be dealt with through the adjustment board process. Thank you, Mr. Hipp. Uh, Ms. Mawe, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioners have lost sight of what the RLA is. The RLA provides for airlines and railroads to enter into agreements and provides procedures for enforcing those agreements. The world of the RLA is nothing more. Nothing in the RLA sets terms and conditions of employment. Nothing in the RLA prevents any government from setting those terms and conditions of employment by providing minimum protections for all workers, including workers covered by the RLA. Only by ignoring decades of law can petitioners argue that the RLA wipes out or forces into an RLA forum these minimum protections. Beginning more than 60 years ago, this court has had opportunities in which it could have held that the RLA governs such independent laws. This court has never so held. It did not so hold in 1931 in the Norwood case. It did not so hold 12 years later in Terminal Railroad, which although petitioners have characterized it as a state based case, in reality began with a union filing a complaint against a railroad in a state administrative agency. Well, if you were to prevail in this case, uh, uh, Ms. Mawe, uh, we would have to cut back some on the Burley opinion, would we not? I believe, Your Honor, that that cutback, if Your Honor is referring to construction of the omitted case language, yes. uh, insofar as the omitted case language uh, might have been earlier construed to include independent claims, I believe that cutback has already come. I believe it came in Buell 
1987. That case specifically involved a, a personal injury uh, brought under the FELA. Personal injuries were the only specific example of omitted case in the Burley uh, decision, and to the extent that that decision was referring to a personal injury covered by the FELA, I believe that omitted case <coughs> dictum has now been either eliminated or at least uh, rejected insofar as it might earlier have been interpreted in that way. A lot of the problem here, I believe, has been recognized uh, by the panel in that petitioners are unclear as to what they are really asking for. Are they asking for substantive preemption? That is, that all of these minimum protections disappear totally. Or are they asking for forum preemption? That is, that these kinds of independent claims are funneled into the RLA forum. They say in their brief that they are arguing for forum preemption, but they shift continually back and forth, as in fact has just occurred in the oral argument, and even in their briefs, uh, in their reply brief in footnote 5, uh, they refer to what is in essence substantive preemption, wiping out these rights. Obviously, the analysis that will be applied to petitioner's case will differ depending on which kind of preemption they are seeking. But in either case we submit, preemption is inappropriate. And that is because these independent laws were never intended by Congress to be wiped out either in terms of... There's something else between the the two of exclusive jurisdiction but applying both state and federal law and uh, substantive preemption. That is, the extent that there would be questions in common in a wrongful discharge case before the board. That the question whether Norris was wrongfully discharged has to be determined by the board, and then the state forum can take over. So it's kind of a deference until the board decides the preliminary question. How about that? Would that be a way of harmonizing state and federal law? It, it would not, Your Honor, because the federal law only refers to contract disputes. And in the case of Mr. Norris's common law dispute, that is not based on the contract. We are looking at the distinction as being the source of the right that Mr. Norris is pursuing. So insofar as Mr. Norris is pursuing a right independent of the collective bargaining agreement, even if there were some question that were to arise under a contract because the source of the right is independent of the contract, that particular right remains adjudicable in a court and need not go to the, to the, through the RLA procedure. Well, if a state is willing to take the trouble to do it, can a state enact, therefore, an extremely detailed code of labor management relations, basically covering everything that is normally covered in CBAs and, therefore, uh, in each case, simply be enforcing uh, a substantive state that the, the employee who might sue under it would, in each case, simply be sub- enforcing a substantive state law right and, therefore, ignore the CBA entirely. Well, the state obviously could not come into conflict with direct federal law, but the RLA does let's, not... Let's assume it, it basically enacts what, as a practical matter, is a parallel regime to, uh, to, the, to the, the most salient provisions of most collective bargaining agreements uh, and, uh, and, and one that is entirely in, in harmony. Uh, can it therefore, in effect, provide uh, on each really serious issue an alternate forum if it has a sufficiently detailed law to address each issue? I believe, Your Honor, that it could, but it would at that point have to also refer to the collective bargaining agreement if there was one that applied to that particular provision. Well, for example, if there were seniority provision in the collective bargaining agreement, I don't believe that 
that the state could somehow override the agreement that the parties had come into. But if... Well, let's, assu- let's assume that, they, that the state statute was simply in harmony with it. Uh, could the employee begin, and if he does not like the way the arbitration is going, basically drop it and then simply walk into uh, a state court? Yes. If he is in state court not asserting his rights under the contract, but instead asserting his rights under the state law, yes, he could then go into state court and proceed in that way. And that's exactly what Ms. Lingle did in the Lingle case. She went under her contract and she pursued her remedies there and in fact won reinstatement and back pay. She went into court and pursued her wrongful termination claim uh, there. And and, and there was no conflict, according to this court, even though she was proceeding in both the RLA forum and in court. And we would submit that there is no reason that any different approach should be applied under the RLA. In fact, in terms of preemption procedures, the cases about preemption have developed in parallel lines under the LMRA context applicable to Lingle and under the RLA context applicable here, and specifically in the Andrews case, which held that for contract disputes only, the exclusive forum was an RLA forum. In that case, this court referred to LMRA developments in preemption law, such as Republic Steel and Lucas uh, Flower. And that has been the case throughout the history of preemption under both laws. I would like to address some of the matters that uh, came up in my opponent's discussion. There was a great deal of discussion about the Federal Railway Safety Act, and I would like to point out that he has completely overlooked the inclusion by Congress of an election of remedies provision there, so that even though it applies to railroad workers and not to airline workers, there is in fact retained a railroad worker's right to go to court if in fact he has an independent state right. There is some confusion, the reason being that one of the legislative reports that has been cited uh, says there is an exclusive remedy under the RLA, but that is because the legislative report uh, apparently was from a bill different from the the statute that was actually enacted. You mentioned the prospect of someone pursuing relief in both forms. Yes. Suppose in the, the, um, before the board, the board determines that there was no wrongful discharge. Would that have preclusive effect on a state court action under the Whistleblowers Protective Act? No, it would not, Your Honor, because then in the separate state court action brought under an independent law, an independent determination would be made whether under state law there had been a wrongful discharge or not. And different considerations would come into play irrespective of whatever the collective bargaining agreement might have provided. What if, what if there's a federal whistleblower law that's, uh, that's applicable to railroad workers? Would, would that be applied by, by the board? It, I don't believe so, Your Honor. The, in case after case, what the NRAB has done is said we are confining our consideration to matters of contract, and they refer to law outside of a collective bargaining agreement only if that law is expressly incorporated into the agreement or if it serves as a guide. But to our knowledge, we have... Suppose the grievance before the board is there's a dispute over whether he was fired at all. Yes. The employer says, I didn't fire you. You were welcome to come back to work. And he said, oh, no, you fired me. That's the dispute. And it goes to arbitration before the board, and the board says he was not fired. 
You're saying that that is not binding on the state court when he brings a whistleblower suit in state court? Yes, that's correct. Because that's extraordinary to have no 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 uh, no collateral estoppel effect at all. The, there is no effect we we submit, and the reason is because the determination of whether in fact he was discharged that was made by uh, an adjustment board would turn on provisions in the collective bargaining agreement. Whereas when he came into court, that the same fact. The fact is whether. He was free to come back to work or not. That very same fact is going to be at issue in the state proceeding. And you're yes. saying, even though it's already been adjudicated in, in, a, in a proceeding between these two, it, it will be re-adjudicated by the state differently. Yes, because under state law, there may be... Have any precedent for that in any other area? You know any other area where, where we allow that to happen? I am not aware of any case directly like that, where in fact exactly contrary results were found by an adjustment board and by a court. But the reasoning behind it is that the RLA is confined to that world that we have discussed. Which yeah, but the, the determination of fact is that he wasn't fired, and if he wasn't fired, a fortiori, he wasn't fired for whistleblowing. But it would be a determination made under the terms of the collective bargaining agreement based on the collective bargaining agreement's determination of a discharge. Being fired or discharge might mean something different under state law. Yes. If it didn't mean something different under state law, there would be preclusion. Presumably the same result would be reached, not necessarily not necessarily preclusion, but the same result would be reached if the two... But I thought you said there wasn't preclusion because the standards might be different. If we, if we determine the standards are the same, why wouldn't there be preclusion? If this court were to rule that the standards are exactly the same, yes, then, then I believe if, in fact, there were that determination, there would be a preclusion. In this case, however... How could this court ever make that determination with respect to the law of the state of Hawaii? I agree with you, Justice Ginsburg. I don't believe that this court could make that kind of determination. The Supreme Court of Hawaii could. The Supreme Court of Hawaii could say, we, we, the, the Supreme Court of the United States has told us what discharge means for federal purposes, and our definition is the same. And If they did that, there would be an obligation to recognize an estoppel, wouldn't there? Perhaps there would be, Your Honor. But in this case, we don't have that. We don't have a specific whistleblower protection um, addressing, or, or even on the discharge issue, uh, addressing the facts of this particular case. And so we are left uh, with the record as it stands. And on the record as it stands, Mr. Norris has evidentiary differences with the petitioners as to whether or not he was discharged at all, whether or not that discharge was proper. And we submit that the RLA does not require those evidentiary differences to be resolved in an RLA forum so that he remains free to come into court. <coughs> I'd like to go back to the procedural, the, the forum preemption issue, if in fact that is what petitioners are arguing for. If they are arguing... I like that one better. I think that's a... That's a Thank you. If, in fact, they are arguing for forum preemption, that Mr. Norris's claim is required to go to an RLA forum, then they run smack up against decisions by this court. In particular, they run up against Terminal Railroad, which was a case brought by a union against uh, an, a railroad in a state administrative agency. And if, in fact, there were forum preemption, then at the outset, in the state administrative agency, there should have been preemption, and that case should have been funneled to an RLA forum. That didn't happen. The case came to this court, and the court did not say that the case should have gone to an RLA forum. Similarly, was, was the argument made in Terminal Railroad that it should have, and did the court expressly reject it? 
Not that I am aware of, Your Honor, but if, in fact, there were forum preemption at stake, presumably this court would have uh, recognized what the intent of Congress... Well, that gives it the benefit of the doubt, sir. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and also, he runs smack up against Buell, which was an independent claim, independent of a, a collective bargaining agreement, that was permitted to go through the judicial procedure. As you know, petitioners have tried to distinguish Buell on the ground that it is a federal law-based claim. But there is no reason that state and federal laws for preemption purposes should be treated differently. And you, this, you would say a fortiori, wouldn't you? If, if they should be treated differently, you would give more deference to the states. Yes, yes. And in fact, this court has said that they should be treated alike. In Metropolitan Life, this court said that. And again, in Lingle, this court said that. And in Lingle, in saying that, this court cited to Buell an RLA case, even though Lingle was an LMRA case. In addition... Petitioners run smack up against, at the very least, a constitutional consideration as to whether or not Congress may constitutionally take away uh, Mr. Norris's right to a jury trial. We will concede that clearly, had he brought a claim under the contract, there would be a public right in having the RLA forum handle contract claims in a uniform matter. So that claim clearly would go without a jury trial to the RLA forum. But there is no indication of an equivalent public right that would force an independent state law claim to go into that kind of forum. So at the very well, least... But yes, what, what is the constitutional argument you're making? A Seventh Amendment argument, Your Honor. That I'm not asking this court to decide that issue, but simply to, to take into consideration that petitioner's argument, if accepted, would implicate that issue. And well, to the avoid Seventh Amendment requires jury trials and certain civil actions in the federal courts. Yes. Uh, you, I thought your client was suing in a Hawaii court. He was, Your Honor. The Seventh Amendment has never been held applicable to state courts. Our position is that in the way that this is working, what is happening is if you take away the jury trial, you are funneling all claims, including state and federal claims, into a federal forum that is a non-jury form, into an RLA federal form. So to that extent, we are talking about creating a non-jury federal form that is not a jury form. Well, when in, in what constitutional... It violates the Seventh Amendment yes. to do that because... It violates the Seventh Amendment because it takes away the right to jury trial, and that right has been construed the, the, as... The right to jury trial, but there, it certainly doesn't take away the right to jury trial in any federal court. Well, Your Honor, our, our uh, submission is that by channeling, channeling his case into uh, an, a federal forum, you are also implicating Article 3, and this Court has construed Seventh Amendment concerns as being on the same standard as Article 3 concerns. How, how is one implicating Article 3 by because doing that? You are channeling into a non-Article 3 forum these kinds of claims that traditionally have been deemed to be entitled to be tribal in courts. If, for example, this were a diversity case so that it was brought in federal court, surely Mr. Norris would have been entitled to a jury. But you can make that same argument about a great deal of our National Labor Relations Act preemption cases. Our, our position is that in those cases, if the court is talking about contract rights, then there is an overriding public right that permits the channeling of such cases into an RLA forum, but there is no such overriding public right with respect to state-based rights, differing state by state, and certainly not in the congressional intent 
all that petitioners are laying their, their weighty argument on is in essence the word or in the RLA. And we submit that that is too heavy a weight to place. In fact, just two days ago, Justice Stevens read the decision in Landgraf in which this court said, extraordinary weight should not be placed on narrow uh, terms in a long and complicated statute. And we submit that the placement of such weight on the word or in the terms arising out of grievances or out of the interpretation or application of contracts is much too great a weight. Thank you, Ms. Motley. Uh, Mr. Seaman, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, I'd like to begin by addressing some of the issues that came up uh, earlier in the argument. Uh, first, we would part company uh, with our, our colleagues on the issue of preclusion. Uh, we would say that, uh, that when a, a factual issue is arbitrated uh, and, and goes through to an award, uh, that under Utah mining and similar precedent, the normal rules of administrative race judicata would apply. Um, uh, the second point I'd like to make is related to that, which is uh, we believe that what an arbitrator or, or what the National uh, Railroad Adjustment Board can decide uh, under the RLA are grievances. And we believe that the term grievances, uh, by and large, includes claims based on the collective bargaining agreement. Now, uh, to the extent the collective bargaining agreement actually incorporates state law, then it may well be that the arbitrator can look to state law. But his or her authority to do so um, is solely bounded by the terms of the contract. Uh, and that is because, again, the, ter the term grievances really embraces uh, claims based on the employment contract. Uh, the third point I'd like to make has to do with the hypothetical that arose uh, with respect to whether uh, a state could have effectively enact uh, an, a comprehensive labor code uh, that would address virtually all of the subjects that would be covered in a collective bargaining agreement. We think the answer to that, um, to a large extent, depends on whether the state was attempting to regulate the collective bargaining process on the one hand, um, in which case we think that it would be severely limited by doing so, uh, because that is what the RLA deals with. Um, that's on the one hand. The other hand is that a state still remains free uh, to govern, to regulate about substantive matters uh, of employee safety, to set minimal standards of protection. Uh, again, uh, one of the points that Ms. Maway made, um, and this court has made, is that the RLA governs the process for arriving at an agreement rather than the substantive terms that end up in the agreement that's concluded. Why just safety? Why not wages? It can, it can cover wages. All terms of employment. You're saying that, that states can control the mandatory terms of, a, of, of an employment agreement under the RLA. There may be other federal statutes that, and supremacy clause problems at the margins, but as far as the RLA is concerned, the answer is yes. Substantive matters such as wages. Uh, the, 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 the next point um, is also related to the, to the question about what a state can regulate uh, without running afoul of the RLA and the um, process for, for arbitrating minor grievances. Uh, and that is that uh, our, our opponents try to make a distinction between uh, disputes that arise in the employment setting and, um, and safety issues. Uh, but in fact, the two are often related. Um, in, the, in the caboose case, for example, the whole dispute began uh, when employees of a railroad sought to have cabooses added to, to trains, uh, even though the collective bargaining agreement in that case 
uh, didn't provide for the, the cabooses that the state law provided for. In other words, that was a dispute, but it was also a safety issue. In that case, the state had determined that there were a, a minimal number of cabooses that had to be added to trains, uh, even though the collective bargaining agreement in that case provided uh, for a fewer number. Uh, so in reality, the distinction that our opponents try to draw between uh, safety matters on the one hand and employment disputes on the other hand uh, doesn't really exist. Um, and the, the last point I'd like to make with respect to issues that arose prior uh, in the argument uh, has to do with the, the Seventh Amendment. And uh, we would say that uh, ultimately we don't know the answer to the question of uh, whether the Seventh Amendment applies. We think the difficulty uh, of making a Seventh Amendment argument uh, with respect to our colleagues uh, is that this court has never held that the Seventh Amendment applies to actions in state court. Uh, it only applies to federal court actions. And for that reason, we, we, we're, we, we doubt that a, a serious Seventh Amendment yes, problem is raised that here. Yes, she says if you had diversity, you could be in a federal court. That's right. But, but a diversity action would go forward in, in federal court. And to the extent that the proceeding was in a, a court of the United States, then the Seventh Amendment would clearly apply. Well, that's true. But, but her point is that by, uh, by uh, uh, excluding that course, by requiring you to go through the arbit arbitration uh, mechanism, you deprive the plaintiff of that option of getting a jury. That's right. And, and oh, it's a possible argument. You're, you're just not along with it. And I think that the, more important, the more important point, and, and it is important in interpreting Congress's intent, is that uh, even if a person doesn't have a constitutional right to a jury trial in a state court, it's nonetheless an important and valuable right. And so in interpreting the RLA, the court should consider whether Congress intended to uh, extinguish uh, this valuable right, either by uh, totally, totally extinguishing the state's substantive right um, or extinguishing the right to a state forum. Do you recognize any kind of uh, deference or which one goes first? You, you've answered the preclusion question differently. If the board goes first, it would bind the state court. But here, it was a person proceeding in, in both forms at the same time. Does the state have any obligation to defer, to hold its case in abeyance, uh, while the board answers the question, was there a wrongful discharge? We don't believe that it has an obligation to do so, although uh, we would certainly think that in certain cases it would be prudent um, and that the state court could, without running afoul of, of either the, the plaintiff's rights or the RLA, defer to arbitration. In other would words, state court be bound by factual findings in the arbitration? Yes. And would the uh, arbitration panel be bound by factual findings in the state in the state proceeding if that terminated first? I believe that's so. And and there and that is where the problem uh, of of deferral becomes important. And and we think that in, in but we but we don't believe that the RLA itself of its own force would require a state court uh, to basically defer or, or, or um, stay proceedings pending the outcome of arbitration, at least as long as the plaintiff's claim um, does not depend on an interpretation of the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, we're, we're basically positing an either-or situation. Either the claim can be brought in state court, and, and we think that respondent's claim here can be brought in state court because it doesn't depend on an interpretation of the collective bargaining agreement, or it has to be brought in, in arbitration. Uh, and that would be because the claim requires some interpretation of the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, that isn't so here. What if the uh, collective bargaining agreement contained a definition of discharge that, that uh, was not complied with? I mean, it, so that under the agreement there was no discharge. What, what, what do you do in the state court action? 
Well, in, in, in this case, that issue doesn't arise because the respondent was very clearly discharged after the step one hearing. But uh, in general, the question of whether a discharge occurs under, under uh, for Hawaii whistleblower protection purposes is a question of state law. Um, and I, so that, that would mean that if an arbitrator determined there was a discharge within the meaning of the collective bargaining agreement, that would not necessarily preclude a different holding in the state court on the same issue decided under a different standard. That's correct. Oh. The only the preclusion would attach only to factual findings, hi historical matters, uh, for example. And um, I, I should actually um, qualify um, my point about preclusion by saying that Certainly, in deciding whether uh, a finding about a historical fact of an arbitrator was entitled to preclusive effect, a court should take into account uh, the, ex the, the procedures that the arbitrator followed. I mean, obviously, uh, again, in accordance with Utah Mining Construction Company principles, uh, the extent to which the arbitral proceeding resembled uh, judicial sorts of proceedings would be important in deciding. Uh, Mr. Seaman, uh, are you representing simply the Solicitor General here or the views of the uh, National NARAB? We are representing the views of the United States, not one specific agency such as the NRAB or the NMB. If, no, if there are no further questions, that concludes my presentation. Very well. Thank, thank you, Mr. Seaman. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.